Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thum. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we look back on the 27th anniversary of a massacre which drew international attention to the independence movement in Timor-Leste. We examine a traditional Javanese dance at risk of dying out in Indonesia. We speak to a Malaysian politician advocating for the ratification of a United Nations convention designed to end racial discrimination. And one of our contributors talks about the lack of support for women facing violence in Myanmar from first-hand experience. It's known as the massacre that helped turn global public opinion against Indonesia's occupation of Timor-Leste. On 12 November 1991, hundreds of East Timorese youth were shot dead at Santa Cruz Cemetery in the nation's capital of Dili. Video footage was smuggled out of the country, prompting the world to take notice. Now living in an independent state, the people of Timor-Leste commemorate the Santa Cruz massacre every year. But for today's younger generation, the massacre is not just about remembering the past. It's become a source of inspiration to fight modern injustices within their small nation-state. In Dili, reporter Theodosia Dosris joins the marchers on the 27th anniversary of the massacre. It's 8 o'clock in the morning and thousands of people have gathered in front of Dili's mother church. Despite the early morning heat, the street is full of people singing, chanting and praying. Many of the younger members of the crowd are wearing the uniforms of their schools youth groups or churches. They stand together with the families of the victims of the Santa Cruz Massacre. The marches are getting ready to walk through the streets of Dili to Santa Cruz Cemetery. They are following the footsteps of demonstrators who marched this same road 27 years ago. The demonstration in 1991 was in protest of the killing of Sebastian Gomez, an independence activist who had been shot dead a month earlier. When the original demonstrators arrived at the cemetery, hundreds were shot and killed by the Indonesian military. Many of their bodies have never been recovered. I was born the same year as the massacre and have grown up with this story. Almost every year, I have joined this commemoration march. For me, it's a day to show respect for those who sacrificed their lives so that Timor-Leste could become an independent country. Max Stahl, the British journalist, who filmed the massacre is part of the match. 27 years ago, Stahl smuggled footage of the massacre out of Timor-Leste. His video shows people running for their lives through the cemetery, some injured, some being shot down. 
Listening to his film, you can hear the sirens and screams. His gunshots echo in the background. Still residing in Timor with his family, Stal is seen as a hero for many East Timorese. I asked Max if he had a message for the young people marching today. This is a story. This is a great treasure for Timor. And it belongs to the Timorese, not exclusively. <laughs> it's not a story that's mine and not yours. But it comes from here, and it comes from the courage and the values, the human values that the Timorese never lost in the worst of all possible times. And in the current world, with these horrible events in Syria, Iraq, and so many places, I believe that's a great beacon, a, a light, not just to Timor and to the young generations in Timor, but to the young generation everywhere. And it's up to the Timorese young people not to let that light die. As the march begins, groups of families and young people are walking alone holding banners. One of the groups making the most noise is MUTIA, a movement of university students. They're all wearing the color red. MUTIA's president, Abilu Suarez Jimenez, explains what today means for him. I feel very happy about today because those heroes that passed away and the survivors that are still alive, they dedicated their life so that today we, who are now the same age as they were, we have liberty, the same as other country. Today we try to follow our heroes from the resistance war, fighting for our country to not be exploited. As a part of the generation following the massacre, I noticed the sentiments among the younger matches. They seem to be thinking more about what is happening in Timor Leste today rather than only in the past. The spirit of struggle to achieve independence for our nation we have already won, but the spirit to fight for justice is still going, to liberate our population from poverty to prosperity. This we have not yet achieved. As youth volunteers, we want to fight for justice. That's why we ask to the government leaders, don't close your eyes to the reality that we have. That's Fernando Jimenez, another member of MUTL. He's quick to equate the protest to the problems he sees in Timor today. Too many problems that our community and our family have. They still cry for clean water, roads and electricity. Today, the government is forgetting the objective of the struggle. Only the leaders are living in good conditions. This issue of parliamentary spending is really important for young politically aware Timorese. They have seen ministers being given state cars at low prices, while brand new cars, usually Toyota Prados, are bought for their successors, a privilege that doesn't sit well with the poverty levels and high unemployment in much of the country. 
I'm a young person and volunteer, recommending to the state to make a resolution about the Prados, give back the Prados from ex-parliament members to new parliament users. We don't need to buy new Prados for the new parliament. This is a big social problem that we haven't yet resolved. At the end of the march, we gather in front of a big stage where survivors of the massacre, as well as the president of the country, will address the crowd. On the right-hand side is the gate to Santa Cruz Cemetery. Before entering the cemetery, I talk with one of the survivors, Rosero Castro Araozu. He tells me a little bit about his memories of November 12, 1991. And when the military came close to me, I ran. Rosero maintains that although independence has been won, there are more injustices to fight. At the time of the 12th of November tragedy, we already knew that they would kill us, that some of us would die, but we are still happy to fight. The struggle for independence would not be ready to contribute. But now we are fighting for the development of our country. After achieving independence, this one is making me sad. He says he understands some of the frustration of young people today. I've become sad because after achieving independence, because the government, especially the leaders, always create difficult political situations. The community is not really happy with them, and the community does not feel that our nation is really free. However, I believe that our new independent country will slowly achieve what the community wants, what we want, what everyone wants. It's not a miracle, but a slow process. It needs work and dedication. Each year, the commemoration ends with people entering the cemetery, lying down flowers and candles. There is a small monument, a space for people to pay respect to those whose bodies have not been recovered. We also walk up to the grave of Sebastian Gomez, the independence activist who was sought in Motal Church. For me, this is a time to think about my country, its past and its future. Sebastian Gomez and the massacre heroes are part of the story of our nation. We need to learn their story. And while my generation pay respect to the older generation, I hope they can also listen to us. To invest in young people and remember their objectives of justice and freedom for an independent country.
That report was brought to you by Theodosia Dosris and Laura McDowell in Dili. In Indonesia, kuda lumping is a traditional Javanese art form that dates back centuries. Part dance, part seance, this ritualistic performance features extreme actions such as eating glass or walking on nails. But in recent years, local groups have struggled to keep this mystical performance art alive and are under increasing financial pressure as audiences turn away from kuda lumping in favour of other forms of entertainment. In North Sumatra, Tegu Harahap speaks to a kuda lumping group who have vowed to keep performing despite the religious and economic challenges. Young dancers wearing royal soldiers' uniforms sway to the gamelan music while holding a piece of woven bamboo shaped like a horse. Some members of the audience start to follow the rhythm. But in second, the mood changes. Suddenly, a feeling of suspense enters the rooms, which suddenly seems infused by mysticism. This is one Indonesia's few remaining kuda lumping performance groups. Meaning crazy horse in Japanese, kuda lumping is a mixed ancient dance and supernatural scenes and has been a form of entertainment in Indonesia since the 15th century. The practice stems from a traditional form of Japanese music and dance, which has been adapted by Japanese settlers in North Sumatra. The group starts with a traditional dance and then falls into a kind of trance. The performers usually then perform feats such eating sad of glass walking or sleeping on top of broken glass or nails, or playing with fire. The Pandawa Lima group is a long-established crazy horse group in Medan in North Sumatra. The assemble existed for years and then disbanded, only to be revived in 2005 by Suratman. He led the group for the caddies before suffering from a stroke but want to leave it as a legacy for the next generation. Now unable to speak, Suratman struggles to remember much about the group's past. But his performer, Budi, explains the origin of the Pandawalima group and the challenges they face in keeping this unusual form of performance art alive in North Sumatra. The group was kind of in a vacuum before Suratman revived it again in 2005. The group had disbanded as many of the members were old and didn't want to continue, so they handed it over to the next generation, who were still young like us. If we count them, we have around 30 members now. There are those who play the drums, the saron, the gong, then the ones who are possessed, who operate the puppets and who dance. After the traditional dances, we have seances. That's the main attraction. Budi is the only member of Pandawalima who acts as a spiritual conduit or the person who experiences possession. He says that he has been dubbing in the spirit world since he was 18 years old. 
The one who is unseen, the spirit that is called, is named Endang. It's so the people who watch us, who are conscious, can also feel possessed. There is a special ritual. The feeling is like communicating with an unseen person, a lot like that. After that, if we go into their world, it's empty and dark. If that happens, then we communicate through our souls. And usually, people who are possessed each have their own spirit. We just help them to find it. So if someone wants to be possessed by a monkey, then we can call a monkey spirit for them. Yes, there are offerings. At a minimum, we give flowers. Flowers for their food, then frankincense, or some people use coconuts. But Kudalumping is facing a dilemma. The spiritual component of Kudalumping clashes with the religious teachings of Islam. And Indonesia is the most populous Muslim majority country in the world. In terms of religion, it's relative. If anyone says this is sorcery, it depends how you look at us. For us, this can be sorted out. When it comes to religion and facing God, we put our spiritual beliefs to the side. We don't put them on a par with God, but we also don't condemn the spirits. But religious fanatics think that this is sorcery and say we play with the devil even though we don't. This is art. This is an art form to us. Everyone in the Pandawalima group has other jobs. They perform at the weekends and practice in their spare time. They do this because they see Kudalumping as an important form of self-expression. While Buddha says that he's called to perform by the spirit world. But keeping this art form alive has its challenges. The good thing about this work is that we are like an extended family. It's a group of Javanese who are born in Sumatra, who don't have much family, and who have become a family. But there is also sorrow, a lot of sorrow. There is no money in this. Kuda Kempang art can't make us rich. We accept any donations we are given. Yeah, we're thankful. This isn't about money, it's about finding happiness in our hearts. In Indonesia, the Kudalumping art form is seen to belonging to the lower classes. It's not recognized internationally by UNESCO, the UN Agency for Culture, and the government has not registered the practice as an important cultural heritage. Other performance art forms like Reok, a practice with similarities to Kudalumping, have become famous. The preservation of Reok shows how traditional performance arts can continue to thrive in modern-day Indonesia. But for now, Kudalumping still exists in the shadows, with its future increasingly uncertain. Especially in North Sumatra, Kudalumping is often minimized or sidetracked. This means that it is an art form that is not widely seen. Kudalumping is seen as dirty, a horse that prances here and prances there. Unlike Ryog, Ryog actually does have things in common with Kudalumping, because they both use horses. But Ryog has always been the winning art form, because they also use peacocks. 
The lumping horse is a small art form, meaning that it's art for poor people. Rich people rarely or never come to our shows. This report was brought to you by Tegu Harahap in Medan. On the 8th of December, the streets of Kuala Lumpur were essentially shut down by a protest against a United Nations charter which aims to eliminate racial discrimination. Facing public backlash, Malaysia's Pakatan Harapan government has already said that it will not ratify the International Convention to End All Forms of Racial Discrimination, or ICERD. Opponents claim that ratification would threaten the quote-unquote special position of Malays in the country. But ICERD advocates point to institutionalized discrimination against minorities in various arenas. The freedom to worship, education and scholarships, house ownership, as well as access to bank loans and land titles. Tamina Kaushi speaks to Kasturi Pato, member of parliament for Batu Kawan in Penang, and a vocal human rights advocate about why she thinks the Malaysian government should ratify ICERD and build a more inclusive Malaysia. YB, so let's start with why it is important for Malaysia to ratify ICERD to truly become an inclusive home to her multi-faith, multi-ethnic peoples, in your opinion. I think, um, first, the definition of ICERD. Um, ICERD is the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Uh, and by that, uh, I think um, it is timely that Malaysia starts talking about racial discrimination and um, as home to a, a melting pot of various um, languages, cultures, religions, ethnicities. Uh, I think it's important that um, all these um, uh, freedoms and rights are safeguarded. Um, many may argue that there are laws in place to safeguard those, but we have seen that even though we have good laws in the past, or at least for the past six, six decades, um, uh, aggression towards minorities, aggression towards people of different faiths, beliefs, even ethnicities has been on the rise. Um, with uh, government assisted or, or where the government is a, an accessory to this sort of uh, uh, a protection towards groups that propagate this. YB, ICER has also become a rallying point for Malay supremacists, for example, at recent demonstrations since it's hit the media spotlight through your efforts, amongst others. So what is your thought on the viewpoint these groups have about ICERD? Is it flawed? Is it appropriate? And how can the confusion be cleared, if there is any? I think the important thing to to take note about ICERD is that it would create a platform for discourse, it would create a platform for dialogue, uh, it would also create a, a situation where there would be international reviews on Malaysia's effort to uh, bridge the gap of inequality, especially among minorities, especially among people of various faiths, beliefs, even gender for that matter. And as far as this um, uh, Malay supremacists are concerned, uh, I think their fear has been propagated by certain quarters who want to push for this sort of the Ketuanan Melayu, that sort of an idea. Now, I'd, I'd like to reiterate here, and as, 
as much as uh, other more learned uh, colleagues of mine have stated that uh, if the fear is uh, any part of the constitution may be amended to accommodate ICERT, it's just absurd because there are reservations that can be made. Uh, and if it means that we can bridge the gap on inequality by using existing laws or even coming up with uh, better legislation, um, then I think that's the, the way forward. For example, we have uh, uh, in the past, MPs have put in private members' bills to criminalise hate speech. Now, this, these are all in accordance with ICERT. Do we not want to see hate speech being criminalised in the country? You know, it's something all Malaysians uh, agree, but sometimes I believe that uh, it is the siege mentality that has been propagated for six decades that makes Malaysians afraid uh, of something like the ICERT. Now, on the flip side though, YB, um, which developments make you feel, even in New Malaysia, there are clear indicators that racial divisions and the politicization of Islam has influenced the collective psyche of the Malay Muslim majority? I'm talking about the kind of blowback that you've also been receiving for speaking out about ICERD and other um, potentially divisive issues all the way from marital rape to child marriage, especially on social media. What is it really like being also a minority female politician speaking about unpopular issues in Malaysia? Um, it has been a challenge and while uh, there is more freedom of speech now, I think there's, there's also a need to be more responsible when comments are made. Uh, there has to be um, a check and balance, particularly on sources of information. I've been a victim of... Uh, uh, certain websites twisting my words and then I've been uh, um, put in the spot to comment on these, these things that have been twisted and I think it's terribly unfair and I don't, I, I, I'm not alone in this, you know, there are so many of us who are, who are subject to it. But I think this, this, I have hope in this country, I have hope in the people, I have hope also in the government, I have hope in the system um, and I know for a fact that uh, this small pockets of minority extremist groups who are who have been radicalized by by Amno Barisa National um, are a dying breed. YB now ICERD actually speaks about racial equality. However, the commonplace Malaysian interpretation so far only focuses on Islam and how Islam will be discriminated against. Can you help clear the air about this? So um, Again, uh, when any country signs and ratifies a convention, there is room for that country to make um, uh, exceptions of, or reservations. So in the case of Malaysia signing and ratifying the ICERT convention, um, there are reservations that Malaysia can make. Uh, of course, saying this, many may ask, then why sign and ratify the ICERT at the end of the day, if it means that we can impose reservations on it? Now, we must understand that at the end of the day, uh, a country must head towards abolishing all forms of discrimination, uh, whether it is against race, religion, gender, uh, um, and uh, um, ethnicity, language even. Um, so, for Malaysia to be on the right track, I believe, uh, signing, the, 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 signing and ratifying the ICERT would mean that we would be able to check on ourselves on the progress that we are going to make 
uh, from now on until we, we, we actually see a non-discriminative society. Um, and ICED would facilitate that because it would open room for discourse, dialogue and a review. And now let's not forget our friends in Sabah and Sarawak as well, the minority aborigines, orang asli, the orang asal in Malaysia. ICED would be something that would be a tool that would be critical to protect the rights of, of the aborigines in the country. The countries that have not signed and ratified the ICED, we're talking about countries like North Korea, Myanmar, South of Sudan, and these are countries that are just broiled in conflict. And, and what happens in North Korea is even worse. You don't even know if there's conflict in the country. You know, the abuses of human rights in North Korea is just appalling. Now, do we want to be categorized into countries like that? You know, Malaysia is one of the countries that's receiving uh, Rohingya refugees from Myanmar, and Myanmar is a country that has not signed or ratified the ICERD. Even Saudi Arabia has signed um, the ICERD, I think. And if you look at uh, uh, OIC countries, Islamic countries, Malaysia is one of the few, and we, 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 we want to view ourselves as a progressive Islamic nation, a nation where other Islamic countries can look towards to as a, a, a you know, truly upholding the values of Islam and uh, teachings. But if we don't, and we have not ratified this, and we have not signed and ratified the ISIS, so I think that says a lot about the previous government and how afraid they had been um, to propagate for equality, even though equality is spelled out so clearly in the federal constitution. That was Tamina Kaushji speaking to Kasturi Pato, the Member of Parliament for Batu Kawan, Malaysia. December 10th marks the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a milestone document that proclaimed the inalienable rights which everyone is inherently entitled to as a human being, regardless of race, religion, sex, and beyond. It is also the last day of the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign, which looks to challenge violence against women and girls across the world. In Yangon, Victoria Milko explains the absence of laws providing legal protection for women in Myanmar, and how her own brush of violence led her to reflect upon the implications of these legislative shortcomings. It was two in the morning. I stood alone in the darkness of my living room as my ex-boyfriend's angry, drunken screams railed against my bedroom window. I used to wrap myself up in his arms, and yet here I was, watching him use them to try and tear the protective metal bars off my second-story balcony windows. I was trapped, and those old bars were the only protection I had. I had broken up with him just a few days before. I remember feeling relieved by how maturely he handled himself. I looked forward to being his friend. But just a few nights later, I found myself alone and scared, barricaded in my apartment and watching him try to force his way in. Apart from the abject fear and shock I felt that night, one thought really crystallized for me. As I stood in my dark living room, counting my exits, I thought, what can I even do right now to protect myself? Could I call the police? No, they're notorious for their mishandling of domestic abuse situations. Plus, I'm a foreign journalist in a country that is hostile to the press. A police report could have serious consequences for my visa status. In other words, game over. Could I call my landlady? No, to her, this late-night spectacle would likely threaten her social reputation in our close-knit neighborhood. Calling her could result in my eviction. Could I call his friends or family? No, I don't speak fluent Burmese, and culture often dictates that protecting a family comes above all else. There was no guarantee that they'd take my side. I resigned myself to waiting for him to pass out on my porch, 
locking myself in the furthest room of the house with all my valuables. As I watched the sun to begin to rise over the city, I curled up in a ball and cried myself to sleep. There's a horrible irony to the timing of it all. The week before, I had been working on a story about how there's a severe shortage of safety, education, and trauma resources available for female survivors of violence or harassment in Myanmar. Statistics from the reports I had been reading all week ran through my mind while I made sure my apartment was locked down. Myanmar currently ranks at 148 out of 187 countries on the United Nations Gender Inequality Index, making it the lowest ranking for all ASEAN countries. In 2017, there was a 27% increase in the amount of reported rape cases. Activists say the rates of violence against women are much higher, but many victims are afraid to speak out. And really, who can blame them when they live in a country where a common saying translates to, if you beat your wife until her bones break, she'll love you more. Since the night of my incident, I've thought back to conversations I've had with my local woman friends here and the stories they've shared. Trials in which famous Burmese actresses were shamed by society as being bad girls or spoiled goods when going public about being raped. And other stories about women calling the police after a fresh beating to file charges against their husband, only to be turned away. Theirs were domestic matters that the police didn't care to get involved in. I thought back to my walks through refugee camps across the country, where signs reading, This home does not beat women, hung on makeshift homes. That whole community should need to announce this as though it were a personal preference is a horrific need. It dawned on me that not even the weight of my own white American privilege could keep me safe. That no matter your status, there are a few mechanisms in place to truly protect the over 27 million women in Myanmar from male violence. For a country that constantly touts rule of law as the solution to all of its ills, the current lack of laws protecting women in Myanmar is abysmal. Last year, the Prevention and Protection of Violence Against Women bill, which was initiated over five years ago but has seen objections from legislators and has been languishing in Parliament, was finally discussed by Burmese MPs. Amongst the many overdue clauses, it seeks to criminalize marital rape, which is currently legal in Myanmar. But the bill, which would provide a legal framework for addressing women's disproportionate experience of violence, is yet to be signed into law, thus providing little legal framework for the protection of women right now. Grassroots organizations, activists, and non-government organizations such as Strong Flowers, Akaya Women, and the Myanmar Women's Self-Defense Center are doing what they can, but with little support or legal precedence, there's only so much they can do. And until Myanmar's elected officials begin to seriously address the lack of protection for women, cultural change will remain slow. My upbringing as a white female in the United States gave me an inherent privilege and sense of entitlement to enjoying a sense of security and basic human rights and I feel ashamed that it took my own brush with violence to fully understand how the women I share the sidewalks with every day here in Myanmar have never had that same sense of security that I once did. I hope one day that they and I can have it together. That was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Theodosia Dos-Ris, Laura McDowell, Tagu Harhap, Kasuri Pato, Tamina Kaushi, and Victoria Milko for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in next week to New Narratives Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.